Welcome to Gaming the Weird, everybody. I am Dan Harms, uh, and I'm the moderator of this panel. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to start over on this end, and we're going to have each of my panels introduce themselves so they can explain clearly who they are, and I don't forget things or mangle their names. So go ahead. I am not Sandy Peterson. My name is Shane Ivey. I publish, I'm a publisher, uh, head, uh, editor, and so forth for Park Street Publishing, where our, our main thing that we're best known for is uh, Delta Green, the role-playing game, which is a modern-day role-playing game of uh, uh, investigating horrible things and your family is falling apart and then you die and go insane. That's not necessarily that order. Uh, we also publish uh, Puppet Land, which I have a copy of here, which is really weird and avant-garde and uh, bleak in its own way, but with cute puppets. Uh, we do DVD adventures, and I have one of those here, which I can try some elements of weird gaming into, and I brought that as a reminder to me to talk about weirdness in fantasy. Um, and most recently we did the uh, annotated edition of The King in Yellow, with the annotations by our next guest, um, which you can see a copy of that and rule over it in the vendor's hall but only that you can't buy it because we sold them all. Um, but at 3.30 we're going to offer that last one for sale for whoever shows up and wants to take it home. And, uh, and our annotator and so on. I'm not Sandy Peterson. I'm Kenneth Hyde. I'm a tabletop uh, role-playing game designer primarily, although I've also written uh, non-fiction, some of the non is in air quotes, uh, such as the Cthulhu Wars and the Nazi Code for Osprey. I've also written uh, one and a half volumes of Tour de Lovecraft. I can say two volumes in things in print where people can't yell at me. But uh, in addition to that, I am the designer of Trail of Cthulhu, uh, the book of the Rose, book of London for that, as well as other uh, material for that game. I uh, did uh, Nights Black Agents, co-wrote uh, the Dracula Dossier with Gareth Hammerhand for that mega campaign. Uh, most recently, the lead designer on Vampire of the Masquerade 5th edition and the writer and designer of The Fall, a gumshoe adaptation of the Delta Green role-playing game, which I also helped write, uh, set in the 19th I'm not Sandy Peterson, I am Dan Harms. I am the uh, mostly known as the author of the Cthulhu Mythos Encyclopedia, but I've also been published uh, at various scenarios and articles for Call of Cthulhu published in uh, you know, Speak Below, The Worlds of Cthulhu. I've done some work for Chaosium. I revised The Keeper's Companion, though my name somehow did not make it on there. Uh, this was back in the day. Um, uh, I've also worked for Golden Goblin, and uh, mainly my role here today is to explain how much I know about writing horror scenarios after this long career. Hi, I'm Fiona Maeve Geist. I'm not C. Peterson. I also, I think, the only person here that's never worked on a Cthulhu game, so I'm really out of my depth and element. Um, I primarily work for Mothership, which is a science fiction horror RPG. There's two copies of all of our books. Uh, I think we won Game of the Year, which was pretty good, um, over at the Outer Dark booth. Please buy them and support the Outer Dark. That's the equivalent to all the sales pitch I can give. Um, I also have worked for Exalted Funeral, Lost Pages, Hydra Co-op. Um, like, anyone that's indie, probably, I should just yell that, yeah. Uh, I am Sandy Peterson. I'm also Badger McInnes. Um, I am a book designer and layout artist. I've done work for Chaosium, up into including um, uh, Call of Cthulhu 7th edition. I've also worked for Bacon Publishing, Discotonic River Press when it was around. Uh, I am now co-director and art director at Sox Press, uh, and I also am uh, 
uh, chief executive cultist at uh, Squamish Studios. We publish um, uh, card games such as Feed the Shoggoth and uh, Arkham Railcon, which will, be, which will be coming out next year, hopefully. Hi, I wrote the very first Lovecraft game, and uh, I, I uh, had my, almost everything that Chaosium produced in the uh, from 1981 until 1988, including developing the Arkham Horror bo uh, board game. Uh, in I spent 23 years doing video games and digital games, and I snuck a little secret Lovecraft thing into every one of them. And uh, now I own a company called Peterson Games, and uh, I've published a board game called Cthulhu Wars, which has achieved a lot of success. Uh, <coughs> and I am still doing things, and my most recent foray into role-playing was Sandy Peterson's Cthulhu Mythos for 5 each, 400 pages of stuff. <coughs> and I, and uh, in September, we are releasing the first in our adventure campaign for, for that, which is an 80-page, big 80-page book, uh, which is already printed, so it'll be shipping a month after the Kickstarter ends. And then every month after that, until something terrible happens, which hopefully won't happen for years, we'll be releasing another 60 to 90 page um, adventure for Sandy Peters' Cthulhu Mythos. So that's on you and now. If you know that he really is Sandy Peters. Yeah. <laughs> I'm really I, I figured I was interested when I walked in, so. <laughs> I mean, it's good that we clarified that. For the people listening at home. Yeah. So the bottom line is I started in role playing, went to digital games, now I'm doing board games with still dabbling in role playing. Thank you. Um, so I have a plan for this panel, which we'll, we'll toss out after about 30 seconds. Because it's a game. Um, because it's a game <laughs> panel. Um, but we're, just, we're supposed to be talking about um, you know, how to write and run uh, cosmic horror scenarios. So I think we will start with system and adventure design, uh, move to group dynamics and uh, how to maintain those, and also session atmosphere. And we may spend all our time on the first one. We'll see how it all goes. Um, so, um, does anyone want to start with a, a comment on you know, looking at designing a system specifically for horror role-playing and how you go about that? Well, I think for context, I, mean, I think two things. One, the context might be interesting to hear from Sandy, something that he's told, I'm sure, a million times before, but he had to address this issue squarely before anybody else had bothered to address it. Well, I'll, just I'll, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you a little story. So back in 1980, I am uh, uh, playing and trying out Call of Cthulhu before it's published because, you know, we had to play it. And uh, I, uh, was I had been trying to figure out how to deal with the fact that Lovecraft's heroes, like, faint or run away or go insane or other terrible things when they see the scary monster. So I instigated a, uh, a sanity system, and the idea behind it was that this would essentially be another weapon in the monster's array against the players that they that would that they could injure players with. Besides just eating them, they could be go insane. So that's that's how I pictured it in my head. So I went to the game and I'm playing the one of I'm playing actually the very first scenario written for Call of Cthulhu, which is the haunted house scenario that's in every copy of the world still. With the, with the killer bed, you probably, guys probably played it and got killed by that damn bed. Yep. Um, yep. So that's the first scenario. And uh, it's pure happenstance that it turns out to be a construction scenario, because that's just happened to the first one I wrote. So we're playing that scenario, and the players got it into their head 
that there was this book they found that I said it summons a horrible thing from beyond. So in game terms, it was a dimensional shambler, but I didn't tell them what it was, because why would I, right? So they're like, well, this is what's haunting the house, we're gonna summon it up. So they went and they got some black cat heads and some black candles, and they're doing the spell, and, uh, and they're getting ready to summon the monster. And as they're doing that, I'm sitting there, and I, I say, okay, well, they hear a scraping noise in the air, and something starts to appear. And then at that moment, one of the players says, I'm, I'm running up the stairs. Another player says, I'm covering my eyes. Another player, I'm just looking away. And I suddenly realized that the effects of the sanity system were that the player's characters were acting like they were scared. They were not trying to see the monster, which is something that never happened in the other role-playing games I've played up to then. You always want to know what's going on. You need information. If you're playing RuneQuest or D&D, you're watching that monster like a hawk. These guys weren't. And I don't know if the players were actually scared or not, but the fact that they're acting like they're scared like, was super effective. And, and believe it or not, until that moment, I had not realized that the sanity system would result in that. And then I, and that's when I said, I'm on to something. <laughs> so that was the moment. And, it, and I think with players acting like they're scared, that helped them like pretend to themselves they were scared and brought that out. I, I think with any, any role-playing game, any weird horror role-playing game, you've got kind of two angles where you want to. You can use the environment, you can use the, the, the suspense techniques, you know, sort of dramatic techniques at the table to try to get the players in the right mindset, you know, and get them enough into their characters' heads for split seconds at a time that they feel that kind of chill. Yeah, but that's usually not the game system. That's like things a good game master does in any system, which Call of Cthulhu or other horror games benefit from. But the sanity system explicitly was was a mechanic that was causing an effect that I wanted and hadn't realized how I was going to be able to get. Yeah, that that was that was certainly the genius of Call of Cthulhu was adding that mechanical effect that reinforced what you were trying to achieve at the table and made it that much easier to achieve it. Yeah, I would say so you've got those two things that work together that I think are inextricable in, in horror games. I mean, the first thing that I said when I was hired by White Wolf to be the lead designer on Vampire the Masquerade, uh, the fifth edition, and we're in the meeting room, and I said, okay, uh, this is we're, we need a death spiral, meaning a sanity system like Sandy invented in 1980. Um, and one of the designers, Kirby Muammar, said, Oh, we knew you would say that. So, <laughs> so I built this one, and he, and he shows me the hunger mechanic, at, which at the time was basically the one that wound up in the book, that um, uh, as a vampire, you're always conscious of here because letting your hunger rise drives you closer to becoming the beast. It's not a, the old system. Stop by the old filling station and fill up on blood points and you can power your CPU, which is great fun if you're playing a supers game. I wanted to do a horror game because it says vampire on the cover. And uh, Kareem had designed that hunger mechanic that basically forces you into these horribly untenable situations to avoid being forced into an untenable situation. And then uh, it being vampire, uh, we had to make the humanity also in that spiral, literally in the case of if the human whom you maintain as your touchstone to humanity dies, then spiral into unconscious uh, of uh, rage and perverseness. So, yeah, I mean, the, the secret is, as I said, glibly at the top of, of this uh, of this question is steal Sandy's death spiral because it's literally the perfect mechanic. It is the you know over and under twenty gauge shotgun of 
of horror gaming. And if you're making a horror game without something that creates a self-reinforcing uh, device for preventing heroism, or at least making heroism have a real it makes, it makes substantial more cost, yeah, right, actually. Then, um, uh, then you are not actually making a game that will mechanically model horror fiction or horror film. You are making a game that may or may not have vampires in it. I think the other you're, game... You're putting a bigger burden on the game master to make it scary, yeah. which, which, which he can probably shoulder, but... But given that he could be shouldering that or letting the, the game partly do it and focus in on other things, because like there's X bandwidth he has, right? I think so. I, I if think the system can help him, that's what it's supposed to do. I think right. another game system that really helps uh, with that and, and, and brings that into the mechanic is Dread with the Jenga Tower. I don't know if yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the story game where you use a Jenga Tower, you do pulls, and then when it collapses, bad things happen to you. Right. So if you want to do something like. I don't know, shoot somebody, you have to pull from the Jenga Tower. And at first, it's very easy. You're able to succeed because the Jenga Tower is pretty solid. But as the game wears on, more and more pulls are performed. And so it becomes riskier. And uh, I believe that the times that I played that if a character pulls and knocks the tower down, you die. And then you reset it. So it kind of ratchets up that tension, pull by pull, and then it resets itself and then builds itself back in. And to me, that's the genius mechanic. Yeah, I, I really... It's a smart way of kind of invoking the, the sort of the, the up and down, rising and falling tension My My take on the Jenga mechanic in Dread, and by the way, I love literally everything else about Dread except the central mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> is that it takes pacing out of the hand of GM. And if the player has fat fingers or uh, is uh, got a little bit of neuropathy or is just not very good at Jenga, their deck score is natively low, or everyone's been drinking, then the game is no longer in, the com in, in anyone's control. It becomes arbitrary. Which I suppose if you're playing Giallo, where literally, I don't know, giant devil demon bats have come and eaten you <laughs> while you were talking to the farmer. Yeah, that, that, that that's fine, work. but it's not robust, and it, it is not uh, the thing that it is ostensibly attempting to do. So that's my beef with Jenga: is that the mechanic, while you know, sound in in a sense, and certainly effective at the table for for, for individual players playing individual games. Uh, to me, as a GM, someone who designs for the GM, you're you're taking huge amounts of power away from them and putting them not in the hands of the players, or at least someone might do something with it but in the hands of their hands, <laughs> which is, I mean, if you've ever seen gamers try to dance, I don't know who's thinking, well, these are the most dexterous and epic people in the world. Let's make the entire pacing of our game depend on this. Is that the source of the horror religion? Yeah, it is, except if it happens in broad daylight when nothing is supposed to be happening, then your game is arbitrary, well, which is I think fine. I think there is a way though that like that arbitrary is kind of a lever that you can push on. That is, if you want to simulate something that looks like Scream, you just get really drunk before you start playing, so that you don't have the mathematical possibility of Jenga equal the like perfect point where like at, there's a certain move number where like basically no matter how good you are, it will automatically fall. 
and how long it is till you will just trigger that by human ineptitude is kind of, I guess, the lever for that game. Um, I didn't work on that game, so I'll just defend, like, the system I work on is still a death spiral. It's, um, you accumulate stress, you check stress, if you fail a ch stress check, you roll panic and add your stress score to it. If you hit a high number, you die automatically of a heart attack, and it worked pretty good insofar as, like, all of the space horror involves people, like, original feedback things being, like, which I didn't develop the system, I but dev later on, uh, be like, yo, everyone just jettisons everything out of the fucking airlocks and then hides in corners. And it's like, well, if they're effectively cowering in space, I think you won. Like, just lie to them until they feel comfortable and then murder them. <laughs> And like break the reality because I think like that's the other rule you could always use is that like look, games are supposed to have certain boundaries and the thing I've always loved doing with Call of Cthulhu uh, is like fucking up that boundary intentionally. Like there's good mechanics for addressing your player by their actual name rather than by their character's name. There's good mechanics for intentionally like being like, oh yeah, roll this thing that doesn't exist on your sheet and then while they're like scanning for it, just fucking with them some more and being like, no, don't worry, your like character's dying right now. Like you just need to like roll a save. Like, this is called there are no save systems. Like, what do you mean save versus death ray? <laughs> Which is great. A joke that goes over, like, a fucking gangbuster on this panel. Clearly, your GM may have had a stroke his life living in a world governed by Azathoth. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I basically am just living in that reality. It's great. So, why don't we talk a bit about um, designing adventure. We talked a little bit about system design and the cube role of the the death spiral and that, and how, how we then take that and move it into, you know, whatever system you want to put it in, what, with whatever sort of setting and scenario you want to, you want to enact. Um, should I ask the dreaded, where do you get your ideas question? <laughs> I, I get my ideas from Lace, and sometimes, some people start with a particular, you know, if they're writing a Cthulhu mythos game of some sort, uh, they, uh, they start with a, a monster or, a, or a species they want to work with. Um, sometimes it's about location. Sometimes you, you know there's some sort of creepy spot near your house or something like that, or a creepy city with all sorts of you know interesting things that have gone on through its, throughout its history. Um, or sometimes it's a moralistic situation that you want to put the characters in and see how they react or don't mm -hmm. react. Mm -hmm. um, for myself, I, I get inspiration all over. Um, one uh, bit of inspiration I got for a recent scenario that I wrote was a <clears throat> uh, Darker Trail scenario. I thought it would be cool to see how the players would react when there's this bit of backstory of something really horrible that happened about 20 years ago, and now somebody from that incident in the past has come back to summon those characters for, it's basically kind of like the, uh, the Magnificence, or the Wild Bunch, you know, one last adventure before we go off into the sunset because all the, the characters are about 60 years old, and I wanted to see how, how that, would, that would play out. Um, another bit of inspiration that I got was watching an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, of all things, that uh, talked about this case of during World War II, there were these blimps that patrolled up and down the west coast of California, and one of them disappeared and eventually came back uh, and crash-landed over Daly City, which is uh, just south of San Francisco, and the entire crew had disappeared. And to this day, this really happened. Nobody knew what happened to the crew, so I took that as a, as a scenario. So I'm like, well, hmm. 
what really did happen to that crew is that I just formed an entire scenario around that idea. I, I, have, I have two sources for, uh, for my adventures. And um, but I, I, I actually, at most painting conventions I go to, I have a talk I give which says, make a, make a horror scenario the same Peterson way, just to show what I do. And what we do in this is I stand up with a whiteboard and I call upon the audience and I say, okay, someone give me uh, um, a place or a setting. And then I say, someone give me an enemy. And then I say, someone name me a scene from a book or a movie, because I think visually about scenes. And then what I do is we take whatever the creature is, whatever the setting is, and whatever the, um, the, the scene is, and, and the scene might be somewhere in the story or not. And then we, then we try to make a scenario based around that. So uh, at, at Gen Con, the, uh, the monster was a bunny. Rabbit was the enemy. And, um, and I thought I was dead in the water with that. We did come up with a pretty good scenario about it. And another one it's your ancestor, and it's an Icelandic spa, and, it, and the story is the Velveteen Rabbit. And, uh, <laughs> and so, right, so I, rabbits are my bane. But, uh, but when we, and, I, and, and together, we take, in 15 minutes, we come up with a, with, so far, always, a pretty killer scenario based around those elements, with the scene happening somewhere in it. It's not always the climax, sometimes I hear earlier, but I often do those stories. I think about a scene I want from a book or a movie or a nightmare of mine. And I say, oh, this was a great scene. I want to have this scene in it somehow. And then the, the scenario was intended to produce that scene at some point and uh, hopefully evoke the feelings that, that I had in that scene in the players. And that's how I direct it. And um, once a lot you start of tweaking the details, it's going to be unrecognizable even if the players might be perfectly familiar with that scene. Well, yeah. it's, well, like when I had the Velveteen Rabbit with the Undead Ancestor in the Icelandic spa, I mean, the player, the people in the room knew it was the Velveteen Rabbit, but uh, but it turned out that what it, that the Velveteen Rabbit element was that the the in the Velveteen Rabbit, of course, they have to burn the rabbit to get rid of the of things, and it becomes a real boy, right, or a real rabbit. So in this, the ancestor goes from body to body when its body is destroyed by climbing into the into the lava under the hot springs, and the spirit goes and takes over the body the next body of a which is one of the players. And so in the final scene, they're in the basement below with the cult trying to trying to hold the player down while the, while the ancestor walks into the lab to be dissolved. And they're trying to keep it from being burned up so it doesn't move on to their body. And so it's the Velveteen Rabbit, but I don't think... Uh, I always just work with, like, one, there's a very effective thing that exists in, um, you know, pharmaceutical testing, which is a lethal dose 50 test, and you want to figure out about what your lethality should be, and then you just, rules as written, like, kind of run things through it and see, like, how many people die? Um, and then you start thinking about resources that players have and figure out ways to be like, no, you can have all the bullets you want. You can have all the guns. Guns make you feel safe. Take them. Have them. This is a high oxygen environment, so the moment that your firing pin hits, you're possibly going to ignite the atmosphere, like, 5% chance. How do you feel? and just find ways to just slowly take away any sense of security you've let them build up because like ultimately you would like them to feel naked, alone, and afraid and like the best way to do that is give them everything that they fucking want and like use the lesson that Predator gave us really well which is like, yo, illustrate that you can kill anyone and then just rip everyone to shreds <laughs> and fuck it up and you know, it's a lot of fun to do that because like you have to find creative workarounds and I think like also, the saddest thing I saw was when during 5e someone complained demons aren't strong enough and that they should have like even higher numbers. And I was like, no, here's an easy one. Demons have one hit point. Whenever you attack a demon, you lose one wisdom permanently. Demons possess children. Demons will only possess children, will always beckon you forward, will always try and touch you. There. 
fucking deal with that. Would you like to become a killer of children? Um, and, you know, it works way more effectively um, because, like, people don't like doing things like killing children or the elderly or starting fires or, you know, intentionally breaking their own sense of security. And I'm not really seeing... Players really do like starting fires, though. Players do like starting fires because fire is the best force and multiplier. And shit up. <laughs> they don't like it when it catches them. Right. They really don't like when the beams come down and they're stuck in their own fire. And you're like, well, you're the one that said you want to go lay, like, fucking kerosene everywhere in the building. I'm sorry that you didn't specify, oh, we would do this like a professional arsonist. I asked you what you did, and you said kerosene everywhere. So I'm sorry that you're on fire. That's <laughs> your fault. You did this. That's like, that sounds like the ending of a typical Delta Green op. Yeah, basically. Yeah. Just yeah. napalm them. I just started looking for ideas. Um, I, I, I recommend you have to sort of train yourself to... Uh, be alert for things that catch your imagination and things that catch your imagination that in a in a way that might feel a little spooky if you just tilt something you've seen. Um, half the things that I wind up writing Delta Green Adventures for come out of uh, come out of the news. You know, I just have my my, my social media feeds. I just get constantly uh, weird uh, you know weird science stories. Um, and, I'll, and I'll generally, if I see one that looks particularly spooky, I'll first check to see is this from a bullshit source. Because if it is, then it's going to be less compelling when I turn it into something supernatural. Um, and so, uh, and, and so you just sort of watch for things and train yourself to uh, to, to, to be ready to be kind of chilled or spooked. Um, at the same time, like doing a fantasy, you know, I'm, I, there's there's more ways of delivering. A sense of the weird at the table than horror, certainly more than Lovecraftian horror. Um, you know, doing doing more in fantasy, the D and D series that we're doing. A lot of that I've been writing based on. You know, I, I, I'll watch well, again a lot of it's coming from watching for uh, articles from um, archaeology websites, from the you know folklore websites that will talk about in the sort of throwaway fashion. You know, grave site, ancient grave site found where there was 200 people sacrificed and they had all these weird uh, uh, rituals that seem weird to us now. You know, and, and, and a lot of times you might just sort of pass over that, but I'm looking at it from the perspective of, okay, can I put that in front of the players? And a, a mass sacrifice of 200 people under those conditions, you don't even have to add much to it to make it really spooky, and you add the supernatural to it. Um, and that's gonna connect the players and their imaginations with something Completely unreal. Um, so you know, there's 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 no end of sources out there for uh, these things. So how do we put all that together? So you've got your idea, you've got your system. Um, I think that one of my challenges I found that when I'm writing a scenario is I kind of I'm trying to look at a balance between sort of the clue trail, you know, the fact that it's a mystery and people are, are the investigators are supposed to be un, you know unraveling that mystery and making sure that it's also that there are you know little horror beats along the way um, and trying to find out you know because if you're in the first part of a Call of Cthulhu game, well, you know, you're going to spend a lot of your time in the library and archives and talking to the neighbors, and so you just you have to be cognizant of the fact that you want to, every so often you want to add something that's going to kind of, you know, add that little spice to it. You want to, I, it it's, it's important, in my opinion, to give hints, to give hints of, of what's to come, uh, of the stakes that are to come, so that if when the player, when the player characters keep digging, um, 
eventually they're going to dig into something that's like going to blow up in their faces, metaphorically or literally. And um, that should be a surprise and a shock in the moment, but it should be a surprise and a shock that they look back on and say, oh, geez, of course that blew up. I was told a half a dozen times that if I did, that we didn't pay attention. Uh, I, I think certainly, the, the, you know, again, one of the big uh, pieces of genius in horror storytelling that came out of Republic of Lulu, the work that Sandy and company did, was recognizing that a good horror adventure at the table ought to be a mystery. It ought to be something that you're going covering because the players themselves are the ones trying to dig to the root of this thing where all the scares are. I think the... And, and because um, the most... Oh, sorry, Sandy. Because the mostly digging to find things, uh, actually the, the, the whole investigation aspect of Call of Duty came out of, out of necessity because I said it can't be a combat game because like the weakest monster of Lovecraft will just eat their lunch. So we've got to, we've got to focus on something else, the exploration, and that lets you have the foreshadowing the mystery that you go into. And my, my principle was that, it, I mean, the idea is if you just spring a monster on them, it's essentially the role-playing equivalent of a jump scare, right? Yeah. And, um, and you want to have some kind of thing. So to give you an example from a completely different genre, um, when I was working on the uh, Doom um, uh, first-person shooter game, my signature move was basically what that I got. One of the things I was known for is that you'd be playing Doom. I'm sure a lot of you have played Doom or similar games. You'd walk into a room. There'd be a little pedestal with a spotlight on it, and like something highly desirable on the on the pedestal, and no monsters anywhere. And every player is like. I know. <laughs> I know that when I go get that thing, that all hell is gonna break bad. loose. But man, I want that thing. But but so so they had the suspense, they had the concern, they had the horror. But they plunged into it anyway, and then got you know, cacked by the monsters. <laughs> but, uh, I think so. That was a different genre, but it's the it was the anticipation. And of course, with the investigation called Cthulhu. They're finding out things about the ancient past, about the house they're going through, these things, and all these lead to there's something awful going on here. I think one thing that will help drive uh, how you shape your scenario is what the threat is, and whether that threat is external, like this cult is going to try to bring about the end of the world by something you ask off. Well, that's an external threat versus an internal threat. Um, like my best friend or myself is about to get possessed by a Migo or, or, or a Shan, and how do I deal with that? And I think that will help determine where that scenario is eventually going to lead, and it's also going to help determine the horror. I think that when you are building the mystery scenario, uh, the two things that you can use to speculate with the horror nodules that you're talking about being are score and uh, the fact that the villain's got their own plan. Yeah, typically they're doing their plan and you're just trying you're trying to interfere with it, which is quite different from a regular role experience right. where you're doing your plan. Right. Yeah. Right. The score yeah. Is, because something unnatural is happening, it should leave a mark on the natural. Right. right. So but, there should be whippoorwills or there should be weird lights in the sky or there should be a strange smell or there should be the fact that the second time you talk to the greengrocer, he doesn't remember your name or whatever it is. Something should happen that signals in the way that you were talking about that, oh, right, yeah, we saw that coming. And you were just accelerating a sense of weirdness in the environment. Yeah. Well, you also have an advantage if they're doing their own plot because you, it helps you keep up more suspense because if it's a matter of you trying to finish your plot, whatever it is, that's fine. But if the enemy is doing something, you see things happening through weirdness or whatever that shows that their plot is advancing, like the green grocer forgetting your name more and more until it's a new green grocer. 
that you sense something's happening, they're doing something. And of course, as a game master, you actually time in it so it comes to the right climax at the right time. But the players feel that that if they don't do something, like it's gonna like something really bad's gonna happen, and they have to keep finding out. And they aren't sure what it is, which adds to more suspense and more. Um, they're on the clock. They're on the clock. They feel better the way. That's that's a really useful thing that you don't often have in a more conventional role-playing thing, where the adventure is, oh, we got to deliver the princess to here, or whatever. But but it, but in horror, where they have a plan, then you can see the elements of that plan get deeper and deeper. It can be highly effective. And even better that. Keeping up that tension encourages the players to take action instead of um, noodling around until the until the players themselves get bored of the board. And because their characters are taking action a lot, they do it half-assed and thoughtlessly, and then bad things happen, which makes it even scarier. Kerosene over here. One of the other features that you have in a, in a horror game is that because of the nature, because you're not doing crunchy combat tactics and working on the right weapon, and the game master says, you say, I want to take a full minigun into combat. The game master says, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, he doesn't care. And then it, which lets you know how useless the minigun is, but, right? But because it's not about the combat and these tactical things and, 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 uh, and so much, that means that you're far more dependent on the interaction between the players and the game masters and between the players and each other than, than you are in many other role-playing games. And what they do and what they're sensing and what they're feeling is a really important thing. And then that then adding that weirdness or the sense that something's advancing becomes very important as the players are spiraling around in their own little discussing what they're going to do. Everyone's been in the game where the players are talking for half an hour about their plan, which is fun, mm-hmm. right? And then, and then and then they're talking, we'll do this and this and that. Okay, we got our plan. And then you throw in the weird thing, you know, like, they, okay, now we're going to do this. We're going to drive out to the cemetery and do this. And they go to the car and someone's stolen the distributor cap. And they say, how did they know we were here? Who got the distributor cap? What's going on? Like, do the monsters know about distributors? You know? And, uh, and suddenly they have a bunch more things to think about. Uh, let me, and, and that's some of the most fun, I think, in a role-playing game. I'll give you an example from one of my games. And like I said, I pick a lot of my things from scenes and movies and stuff. So has anyone seen the generally terrible movie, I Married a Monster from Outer Space? Okay, so in this movie, there's a scene where the monster he looks like a human at this point, right? He walks out on the balcony and to have a cigarette, and the lightning flash, and for a second you see like the Ridge Gerudo's monster face, which is actually pretty terrifying for like a 1960s monster movie, right? Uh, and then you say, whoa, what happened on that wedding night, you know? So what I did is the players have found out something terrible is happening in the big old Cumberland castle up the hill, and they rouse the villagers, and everyone's going, we're gonna go get the castle, and the villagers get torches and pitchfork things and rakes, and they're all like, charging up the hill to, to burn out the monsters, and the players are going along and say, boy, this is going great. And then, as they're going up the hill, I say, oh, it's Dark and Stormy Night. And they say, yeah, we know, Dark and Stormy Night. And then a lightning flashes, and then, until the when the lightning flashes, they can see the villager faces are like monster faces. <laughs> and the players are like, did the villagers know we saw that? Are the villagers monsters? Have they always been monsters? <laughs> do the villagers know that they're monsters? What do we do? How are we out of this? And the players start trying to talk to each other about letting the villagers notice it. And the whole game night, that was the end of the game night, because everyone was just, uh, that evening, because everyone was just, the like, players were trying to figure out what's going on and, and, and talk about it and work on it. All from this one dumb scene in this movie, I got this whole evening of, of highly entertaining watching the players. <laughs> and the players were having a great time. And uh, like, trying to figure it out. And they were, of course, petrified with fear that was going on. They were like, maybe the enemy isn't the thing at the tower, or, or the tower, or, right? And uh, I got a lot of mileage out of this one little thing that the players are talking, and that gave me a lot of buildup for whatever comes next, you know? 
that in some ways that what they saw there was more horrifying than just having them all turn into monsters and attack. Yeah, it's funny how a, a cool scene that you'll just come up with by by getting influenced by that or, or just something off the top of your head can completely morph into a, a, a huge scene in your game. Like, I'm, I'm running more on the Orient Express right now, and forgive for uh, some of the spoilers that I'm about to reveal, but uh, part of what happens to that campaign is that the player characters are trailed by this ancient vampire named Fenelik who wants the simulacrum that the uh, investigators are trying to find. And there's an NPC that I dropped into uh, the campaign who's this little terror of an eight-year-old English boy that's been playing pranks on the characters. And the, uh, the investigators have finally found the second to last piece of the simulacrum. And Fenelik, <clears throat> uh, because he's got a cruel sense of humor, decides that, well, since they're almost done, I should be you know, grateful and, uh, and thank them for their hard work. So I'm going to uh, dismember that child and drop his head into the uh, stateroom of one of the investigators on the Orient Express. I thought, well, that would be a cool scene. They come back from Belgrade, they get back on board the train, and one of the investigators goes into his room, starts to get into bed, and oh, there's the you know, decapitated head of a child in, in his bed, right? I just thought that would be really cool. Well, the investigators ran with that, and we spent the entire session with them <clears throat> uh, enlisting the help of Madame Arcana, who is uh, a medium who happens to be on this plane, and I had to do this entire seance pull it out of my ass, essentially, because I didn't expect that they would do this. And, but it had turned into an amazing scene, just with that German idea of you know, drop a head into somebody's bed in their, uh, in their state room on the train. And in fact, this does bring up the point of running a horror scenario of thinking on the fly. As an example, in the game I ran last night, which I see some of the people that were in it, um, there was, a, there was, I had this throwaway character that they questioned that didn't really know anything. I mean, the, the guy was the minimum wage that worked in an anime store, right? And that poor guy, they like, he became the center of attention for like two hours. They were harassing him, and they were threatening to arrest him, and they were dragging him off, and they were keying his car. And, and, uh, and, and, like, and, like, and they, the thing is, they knew this guy didn't know anything, right? I mean, he knew a little bit, he didn't arrive, but they were really focused. And so the character went from being a throwaway person that didn't know anything to like, I had to, like, I had to make up most of the stuff he knew on the fly, right? Because I didn't. You can tell I didn't know anything about the Zack character, <laughs> and, they, and and I I think I pulled it off to make Zack an, uh, an interesting guy, but it was but I hadn't I mean I had one sentence of Zack Nishida, and then two hours of focus on this guy had to come out of nowhere because of the players, and that that can happen in any role play situation, of course not just a horror one, but uh, the, the horror one is more challenging in a way because you don't have the same stereotypes to work with necessarily yeah. as you do like he's an elf, so you know what like. He's like Elrond, so he's kind of a jerk, and uh, you know, he's better than humans. He lives forever, and yada yada. But 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 in uh, a, a, a horror game set in a more or less modern situation, you're like, well, what does what does the goth guy that works at the anime store like? What is he actually like? When you're starting to drill him, and he's bribed by vampires to do something, then you have to, then there's more details that you have to come up with on the fly. And then of course the players are doing things on the fly working out how to put pressure on this poor guy. And I then and it was it was that interaction that led to a lot of the things. So maybe the other people could talk a little bit about like thinking on the fly, changing the scenario when you have to, jumping to a new train of thought, saving your scenario because the players have screwed it up. <laughs> right. That never happens. What are you talking no, about? Players deserve to screw it up. Players have very possible players. 
but I think like one thing that's always worked is like Peter Straub had a good bit of advice last Necronomicon, not really related to gaming, of like, look, older gods aren't scary. Narlob can eat my fucking soul, whatever. Like people I love will betray me and I will die. Those are like things that don't really matter much, but like really, really personal deep hurt is something that is actually way worse. And the thing, you know, Peter Straub gets to torture children a lot. He's really good at it. You should read his books. If you weren't aware, he was a guest of honor last time, which is two years ago, and I keep saying last year as though that happened. But, of course, like, adventuring parties don't have families because they're smart, because they know that, because they're like, no, I'm an orphan with no fucking siblings. I was a foundling. I was in a fucking, like, bassinet on a fucking church steps, and it's like, okay, great. Well, here's the thing, is the real world is like David Lynch. Like, every single thing that you unearth about a human being or about a place or about anything is like unearthing a mass grave, where you keep finding another fact, and another fact makes it worse. And I think, Sandy, it's one of your scenarios that is an island where there's a, like, degenerated Dagon, Dagon ritual, and I fucked up describing the house, so I ended up leaving a lord of the manor with, like, two, like, mentally destroyed women in his house and not a spare bedroom, and was like, no, I'm just gonna roll with that detail and never say anything directly. Yeah, he just keeps being like, yeah, y'all can go sleep in my living room, good night, I'm walking my wards up. And that slowly made my players more and more uncomfortable, and obviously you should check with your players about things that are acceptable to fuck with them about, but those little details start fucking with them because that's something that is way more relatable because you can always kill their character. It's easy to kill their character. What's interesting is making them survive and leaving them maimed in a particularly interesting way. Lock their skills at like lower amount. Slowly erode them away. Act like a DM having a stroke, which by the way, Ken, I'm like gonna put that on the fucking cover of the first thing I ever published. Is like a DM having a fucking stroke, and I'm like, great, Ken Hyde said it. Like, Absolutely. Jesus. <laughs> fucking, Spot there, it's on the air, it's recorded, this is agreed on, but like, I think. Oh, so sorry. I'm very bad about language. Um, yep. Sorry about that. Um, but anyway, yeah, I think that like you could always sort of like make things more horrible by making them more real. That is like, look, the real world's full of terror. If you want to find out horrible things that human beings do to each other, like research MK Ultra, research like you know Project Phoenix, research anything that the CIA has ever done, and you will find things that are far worse than anything an Elder God can ever do to you with a machete and a little bit of time. Well, sure. I'm going to have to take some exactly. exception and say that the cosmic horror in Lovecraft is in fact that what humans have and what humans do is fundamentally limited and that the outer cosmos that goes on for eternity is infinite does have a certain element of terror beyond what we do. That's not saying that that the inner mind doesn't have terrors of its own, but I'm, I'm going to stand up for the cosmic horror. No, I love cosmic horror. I'm not attacking it. I'm literally saying that like, if you just say like your character is meaningless and you exist as a speck of dust off the bat, it doesn't work. You have to build to it to some degree, right? Like, yeah, I'm not... The, 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 yeah. the trick, is the, the, trick okay. is the relatability with the cosmic horror and making it personal in some way. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of the key to knowing things on the fly is you have to know your characters, know, mess with them, what where their vulnerable spots are, even if they were uh, bassinet orphans, the orphanage that they were left on is um, and the uh, And the other thing, if you know, as I mentioned previously, the villain's plan, whatever the characters do, the villains have to counter it too. They're like, oh my god, these people, what are they doing? Why did they burn down that mansion? Well, I guess we'll go dig around and look for the books that were underneath the basement now. They've killed that innocent old man. Good for them. And uh, while the characters are being, you know, dragged down to the police station by the arson squad, who, by the way, have got a very full profile on them, um, the, the cult is digging through the ruins of the old Crown Shield place looking for the occult library. And that 
has now given you lots of new uh, things to do as well as ways to put pressure on the, on the, on the player characters. And when it comes to uh, improvisation and adapting and play, well, another, another key ingredient for if you're GM is to uh, keep in your head at the forefront of your thought and mood that you're going for at the table that you're trying to invoke and that you're trying to bring things back around to. So if you've got, if the players spring something on you that surprises you, then you're having to react to that in some way. You're gonna to have to come up with something on the fly. But if you start with the constraint of what I'm coming up with on the fly, you need to evoke this sense of weirdness, this sense of contact with things that we can't understand. And we want to make that lack of understanding feel strange and make us feel helpless and therefore scary. Um, that's going to guide you as you're improvising, so you don't necessarily need to feel like the whole, you know, there's so many possibilities that you get paralyzed. Um, me personally, I'm not great at improvising at the table, that's just a weakness of mine. But having that constraint makes it way easier in a game like the Green or the Blue, where I know what mood we're trying to go for at the table. Two, two comments. One is that. Um, if you must as a game master, it's okay to say, whoa, you blindsided me, and then like, let's take a break so I can think about what to do. And often the players are like, cool with that, and they feel proud of having blindsided <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I don't have to do that as much now because I've like, had so many game experiences. But the other thing is we were talking, someone mentioned it was a cool thing about someone that you like being in trouble. And of course, there's the issue that player characters generally don't have any like, don't, don't have anyone they love except for the player character. But you can fix that, and the way to do it is not necessarily to saddle him with the mysterious uncle who's going to be killed by the monster, but what I do is I, I, is I will take non-player characters, okay, and introduce them in the scenario and have them be nice guys or helpful or interesting or quirky in some way, and not kill them off in the scenario or even menace them. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure, you can use my fishing boat. And then in the next scenario or the one after that, once they're used to this guy and they like this guy, then you can menace him, right? And, yeah. they, and like, this is an ongoing guy. They've seen in several adventures, and eventually the time will come where we're like, "Hey, you remember uh, Mr. Surendock?" And they go, "Oh yeah, that, he says he's got some kind of trouble." And they're, "Oh, we gotta rescue him because he's a guy they know." They eventually, he's become part of their gaming family because they've met him and dealt with him and done things with him. And uh, and then and it's a, it's a pretty easy trick to pull off because usually you have someone in your adventure who's a nice guy, but if you always kill him in the adventure, then they learn to like write them off right at the start. But yeah. if there's not killed, but in the next adventure, he's menaced, or even just a threat of that. Like going back to yeah, going back to horror and the Orient Express. That's one of the the great things about it is that there are all these NPCs along the way that uh, the investigators get to meet, and my group, much to my surprise, have adopted in one form or another some of these uh, NPCs and have established real deep relationships with them. Like there's this one boy named Giovanni that they initially just hired as a guide in I think Milan and he's a street kid, doesn't have a home, he's a little orphan. Um, and now he's a but he's there orphan now. But now he's their orphan and they care about him and they've been teaching him stuff and they've been educating him on how to speak English. Uh, there's you know a couple of other just like that. And so now I have not only yeah, those you, relationships. You someone who's useful or who's funny, right. especially. The yeah. players will like glom onto that guy, you know, and they say, oh, the comedy guy, we like him, you know. Yeah, there's, uh, uh, you know, Hooky Pete, the guy with two hook hands, you know, or whatever. Very bad to have him to Hooky. I didn't have 
guy who me beat. I had a dancing Jack who was a guy with two big legs, and uh, the players just loved that guy to pieces. You know, they took him on his boat with them and doing things with them, and then like, I don't, think, I never actually menaced him, but if I had, they would have died to the last man to save Dancing Pete. You know, <laughs> <laughs> Hell, that's that's great investment though. That's like exactly why you should make the environment feel real. Like I think, uh, yeah, that's like the kind of beautiful thing is like if you slowly build a world and you slowly give them something, you slowly let them unearth something, they're going to like increasingly encounter like people that are supposed to be telegraphed as doomed and you don't kill them, and people that are supposed to be telegraphed as helpful and they're actually helpful, and that makes them feel secure and that should make players feel extremely nervous because if everything's going as planned, like there is something going on that is very wrong, or you are doing exactly what you're supposed to do. Yeah, that fosters the emotional investment that can bring out the best type of horror in, in your horror role-playing games, it, because if they have more emotional investment, then when the horror hits them on a relatable level, then they're that much more affected by it. It's Sandy's altar with like a clearly desirable thing on it, which works so good. Just put that in every single room and in every single adventure is, here's the thing that you can go for, and it will just destroy everything. Would you like to go for it? Welcome to the house of a thousand dollars. Well, it is especially useful if you have it be a character who's mildly comic, because then they get they kind of they kind of forget they're in a horror scenario, and when that guy, you know, like like Zach and thing I the sign, he was pretty much a comical character, right? And by the end, I think they were almost you know they were they were making up they were making up stories for what would happen to him after the scenario. And <laughs> so I want to jump in here real quick and to play off that because one of I think my challenges when I'm running a horror game is that sometimes you know with, with Within the course of these investigations, the players do incredibly ludicrous, hilarious things to try to solve the problem. And so at some point, you start to lose the threat of having to, you know, that, that sort of creeping dread right there because people are, I think someone gave an example um, a couple, was it last night, of you know, people loading potatoes up with gunpowder to make explosives to kill a Wendigo or something like that. But, like, but yeah, so um, how do you... Wendigo, how do you have to <laughs> Yeah, this is a very good thing, but like... So how do you, how do you handle that particular situation? Play the response straight. Like, you can make a really elaborate confidence game. Really elaborate confidence games work. Like, look, look, Wall Street exists, but at the end of the day, the things that respond to you when you start committing petty crimes are police and they shoot you. Like, there's not a warning, there's not, like, anything else, you get shot, and, like, great, your character's goofing off, you're goofing off in a public space, you're goofing off and getting in people's faces, and you're trying to get into a building by, like, you know, doing some, like, minor con man tricks. And enough people rebuff you that, like, yeah, you're going to take two in the head and they're going to drag you to a morgue and it doesn't matter. So, good. Keep doing this. Like, figure out a good way to go for it, but, like, play all the responses straight. People don't like being screwed with. Real human beings that work things like service industry jobs do not like you if you do these sorts of things that NP the PCs do to them. And they will remember you and they will hate you and they will find small ways to make your day worse. And then also reward their pro-social behavior of treating their peg-legged dancing friend well. Be like, look, that guy likes you. One, of the, one of the features is that uh, horror is kind of a delicate genre, and it's, you see it in movies as well, but like, if you mix horror with action, then the horror then it becomes an action movie with horror elements. It's not really horror anymore. But one thing you can mix horror with, oddly enough, and keep the horror is comedy. And But the way to do it, and the good horror comedy, all play the monsters straight and the humans can be funny yeah but the monsters are straight Shaun of the dead the zombies are played straight right even Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein 
the like the monsters are straight. Their plan is horrifying. They're bad monsters. The humans are funny, and that's and so you can have your humans be a little bit comic as long as you remember the monsters shouldn't be comic. They shouldn't be laughing at themselves. They should be still scared of the monsters, and it, and it, uh, and that is the way to use comedy if you if you want to. You don't have to. The players don't necessarily want to be comical all the time. But if they're doing something silly, you let them be silly, and the monsters are the, are, are 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 not silly. In my experience, humor humor is, is inevitable in a horror. Game. Well, yeah, yeah. because yeah. exactly people want you know people need a, a break, right? That tension rises if you're playing it. But the better you play it, the better you GM it, the more tense the players' brains are going to be. Yeah, and they need that, they need that break. Literally, the evolutionary response right. to fear. And yeah. So, so, yeah. so, if you've got when you have those moments of sort of bleak humor where everything just explodes, then that's then that's that's great. Um, the trick is is to kind of as the GM, you're the host, you're the one responsible for this experience to a large extent in most of these games. And so, your challenge is to let that happen, but then know how to kind of rein it in and bring their attention back to something yeah. uh, that's going to reinforce the mood. Yeah. Reinforce the Right, yeah, the tone, yeah, exactly. And that is, is where the score thing that I mentioned earlier happens. If you've got the list of awful things that can happen that demonstrate the nature of the, of the uh, wrongness, uh, just go down the list until you find one that works in the moment. And so you're all, you know, busting each other up over dance and beat, and then, you know, slowly, you know, one of the characters sort of sees dancing Pete, but they see him in, you know, frame drop moments. He's not a continuous figure anymore. It's like he's a, a painted puppet and it's just being dangled in front of them by some uh, hateful god. And then the other players are like, no, dancing Pete's just great. And the first player's like, no, dancing Pete is a construct we are being messed with. And that then puts them back in the mode of, we, we, you know, even dancing Pete is a, is a hateful thing to us. This is a bad world. <laughs> I, will say, I will say one thing about Little Dancing Peter, Dancing Jack, I can't remember now, but is that I actually made him up as a throwaway character. He was a guy that was selling stuff on the shore to people. He ran the, like, the bait shop. And the players, he said, you should watch him. And like, out of the blue, yeah, he's got two peg legs. That's why he's called Dancing Pete. And they like laughed. And then I thought they would just like buy some bait and go away. But they turned him into this major character. And of course, a guy like that has to be comic anyway. So they adopted him. But of course, the fact that I was coming up with characters that were adoptable, I guess that helped. And and then like pulled him in. And of course, I, I never used Dancing Jack as like a horrible concert of monster, but but I'm not above doing that. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it might not even be the Dancing Jack or Pete, whatever his name really is. <laughs> the dancing is the important part. That's why it was funny, right? It is a construct it's that one of the players sees him as a construct. And so the question is, am I sick or is dancing Pete an illusion? Or are both true in some even more horrible way? And you get them asking questions again, and that tends to diminuendo at least the humor, because now they're back in a we-don't-know-everything mode. Okay. And it's harder to laugh at. You, you just uh, also touched on another idea uh, for uh, a tool in your toolbox is uh, having something weird happen that only a few or just one of the group experiences and not everybody experiences because that tosses even more confusion and mystery into that like having dancing Pete just appear out of sync or frame by just one of the characters and then they start telling relating that to everybody else on 
why did you just see that? And how could we didn't see that? This leads well, to the and question of how you do that because you have everyone sitting around the table. So how do you guys pull off the feet? Uh, I mean, everyone has their own ways. Uh, like, uh, you must tell X someone that the other guys don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it, I, it, it's best if you can just jot it down in very, very few words and pass a note. If it's something more involved than that, then you may have to say, okay, everybody, we're taking a five-minute break and take that care of that player out into another room or closet or something. That's, that, to me, that is the last solution because it's so distracting. Right? Well, also, then they're, they, they're on to the fact this guy knows something. Exactly. Yeah. But, but you can pull a fast one and just pull somebody aside at some point and just say, I'm just pulling you aside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not with the fake note idea where it's like, no one says, I've done that too. Hey, guess what? Nothing's in this. I know what's fed a guy constantly through the game with these notes. And the most are I've already know it. And all of a sudden, there's nothing here. And they say, What is that? He's not, it's nothing he would say. And they're like, They were so suspicious of that poor guy. That's private. That's between me and that player. Right. You know, uh, especially with sort of meta concerns and uh, uh, horror perception, letting the players know and then ha expecting them to play that their characters don't know is even better at the table because they have the ability to see the real awfulness as players that their characters don't see, and then they will play their characters into the state of unease that their players already are. Whereas if you just pass one player a note that says, Dancing Pete looks like a marionette, then all they're thinking is, oh, that guy's probably been possessed by Nico or something, and they shoot. Um, <laughs> well, I think. But, but yeah. I mean, it, it all depends because there may be a reason you want the other players to shoot that player. I mean, that's that, keep that in your in your golf bag, certainly. We could always put players against each other. Like that's the good thing is that like I think paranoia really helped with this. But like you know, um, as a habitual smoker, being like, yo, you come with me. Like I just need to go out. And sometimes you just need someone to go out with you, and you just don't want to be alone because this is a terrible habit. And you should never pick it up. But <laughs> if you, you do, want to be a good GM, then you should smoke. <laughs> Please don't put words in my mouth, Ken. I, I'm young. Um, but um, I, I do think that, like, right, you could subtly position characters against each other. I think like, these examples has worked towards that. That is, like, if you slowly tell one player, like, this person seems increasingly wrong, and everyone else just knows that that player is acting different, and then that player decides to take things into their hand and is like, look, dancing Pete, Jack, whichever, dancing person. You know, the dancing man gets taken and interrogated roughly by another player and that puts the players against each other and that makes the questions of character sheets be interesting because characters are, you know, fairly squishy. You're not making them fight back against Cthulhu where the like thing that will always ruin things is a critical hit. You're rolling characters against each other and that's going to make players start feeling things and those feelings are going to get very weird. And it's 2.30, which means I think that you're going to open up the floor to questions yes, or something. Does, and I'm yes. stealing this water. I don't know who it is. So I will, um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to listen to questions, and then you'll ask them, and I'll repeat them, and I'll pretend like I could hear them. Yes, go ahead. Hi. Uh, so um, I guess this is a question we were talking very early on about Jenga and some of the, the pros and cons with Jenga. So I guess I'll frame my question as system matters, question mark. Uh, I'm thinking about things you, in terms of, of horror gamings, uh, you've got on one side over here you've got something as light as Cthulhu Dark by Graham Walmsley. Over on the other end you've got something like Pathfinder and Cthulhu Mythos for Pathfinder. So there's, so I guess I'm wondering, uh, th this is part A of my question, it's too part of it. So I guess I'm wondering is there a sweet spot between sort of the Bailey there of Cthulhu Dark and not really focused on the character and sort of maximizing your immersion 
And then on the other end, you've got uh, a Pathfinder where you know it seems like you're always looking at your character to see what you can pull off. That is there kind of a sweet spot, or is it does does the sort of the genre accommodate all? So that's the first part. What, what, what can we do with that one first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. So, so I'd say the question is, is: Is there a sweet spot between rules light and rules heavy? Yes, it is all the way through the best role playing game ever. Yes, right. playing game is to have fun with your friends. And if your friends have fun doing tactical combat against the Shargoth and being really rules crunchy, then you're having you're getting the goal up to have fun. So the other they judge them, but they're having fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. So that was a bam, we got we got the sweet spot. It's, 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 I mean, it, it's gonna depend on who you are and who your players are, right? Yeah. And and what your goals are, right? I mean, I mean I've I've played I've I've had I've had a blast playing Pretty much any role-playing game I've played, right? Honestly, I can play Pathfinder and it's wonderful all the time. And I've, and I've known people who've half-assed their way through uh, very, very rules-like games, but I've known people yeah. who've immersed themselves in the dankest of uh, 3.5-derived uh, fantasy games. It's yeah. about players at the table. It's not about the system in that sense. I mean, the system does constrain action, and an intelligently designed system provides uh, mechanical rewards for certain actions, such as covering your eyes and running away. But the the players at the table and their comfort with what they're doing and their ability to accept the fact we're playing a horror game, not a different kind of game that might also be fun, is it's 80%. It's like you know the old line, 80% uh, of directing is casting, 80% of GMing is players. Yeah, I think it's, if you want to recognize what your rules do and what your rules have the players do, right? So with, with Pathfinder or, you know, or, you know, the players spend a lot of time thinking about different rules, thinking about actions they can take, thinking about the options that they have, and, and they spend a lot of time thinking about how they can increase their power and their character's impact on the world. So if you're going to try to do a horror game using those, that kind of mechanic, then you're going to have to figure out how to make all of those aspects contribute to the fear, yeah. contribute to the horror, right? It is, it, is, it is, I think, more horrifying if they're thinking about how to solve the problem or deal with the issue instead of how they can improve the character. That's why I like Call of Duty, you don't really get to improve your character very much. He mostly just deteriorates over time. But, GM, but, that, but, I, but, the, but, but then, but no forget the overall goal, which is let's have fun. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so if the characters yeah. think they'll have more fun by being horrified, then do it. And I will also say that I am not a big fan of the GM telling a story uh, style of role play because I figured if the players wanted to hear a story, they could like watch a movie or read a book, and it's and the interaction is has to be there to some extent. So, so so pot be super quick. This may have already been addressed, uh, but so I was just thinking uh, in games like Delta Green or Call of Cthulhu, you do have uh, you have a you don't have you don't go up in hit points, you don't go up in capacity. Oftentimes, it's a spiral down. But in games like 5e or Pathfinder, where it's inherent your character is literally going up in level and getting more powerful, how do you uh, how do you kind of is there a, is is there sort of an inherent uh, 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 problem? Maybe not with with a game that encourages personal uh, advancement and betterment, if you will. Is that a word? Betterment versus a game where you have like you are very vulnerable and you stay vulnerable. Is there, how do you handle horror? Power or high level the, the horror or high level characters. Uh, I mean, yeah, you can do that. I mean, look at the you know, Tomb of Horrors, right? The, 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 the ridiculous but effective, because we're still talking about D&D uh, Adventure, which is all about nice little characters in, in AD&D. 
getting into the traps of the children and stuff. I mean, I, I know, like, that's, that's the weird thing about Two of Horrors, though, and I think it's maybe a fundamental point to this, is, yo, you can beat Two of Horrors with level zero characters and one cast of uh, Remove Curse to class one door. If you're intelligent, you can beat Tomb of Horrors with a level zero character, and you should try and do that. Because if your character sheet is what you're relying on, you're not very good at role-playing games, and Gary Gygax designed that dungeon to test your limits at things such as prodding ceilings and figuring out how traps work. Shuffleboard will fix the first floor of the traps with timers. That will fix all of it. Figure out from there. Well, you can kill a character in I think your question is a little more deep, which is like, the, the fundamentals of D&D, or Pathfinder, is that you're trying to advance your character, so it's a different focus from Call of Cthulhu, where you're trying to enjoy your character while he lasts. Right. right? Yeah. And um, <laughs> I would say that, I would say that, that my response is that, in, that, given that I'm releasing a major campaign for St. Peter's and Cthulhu Middles, I'm a little embarrassed about the Sandy Peterson's part, but there it is, right? Um, is that in general in D and D, what you're going to have to do is, I think, have have like scenarios where you're scenarios which are action scenarios with horror elements, but are primarily action, interspersed with that at certain points. <coughs> There's the horror scenarios where they're actually scared. And this goes back to the idea that if you're watching like a really long book, horror book or a really long horror movie or, or a horror series, it's not scary every second. Right. Right? It's there's there's moments where it's scary, and in a long-term game where your character's supposed to last, like D&D, then that's what you gotta do. You have to go for the it's scary here, and then it's gonna be scary here, and then it's gonna be scary here. And in the meantime, they're both up the character. And a byproduct of, of character advancement in D&D or, or Pathfinder is that you're also exploring more of the world. You're branching out and, and going to new locales and meeting new people. And you can use that as a method of also showing the players that, well, the horror is not just in the hometown and the tavern that you started at, but it's also over here and over here. And as you reveal more of the world, you can also reveal more of the horror, and it gets bigger and badder and worse. Right. And then when you have your character that you've worked up over this time to the ninth or tenth level character, and you're, and you're all attached to him, and then Tomb of Horrors comes in, and he can be killed in a single moment by some awful trap like falling into the top of a cream. Um, you deserve it, then. Like, yeah. I'm sorry, your level character deserves to die if you die in Tomb of Horrors, and you're bad at D&D. <laughs> I think everything that you need to know about uh, playing horror games with high-level characters, Fiona answered at the very beginning of this panel, she talked about the one hit point demons that possess children. If, if the problem can't be solved by, you know, uh, having 180 hit points versus 80 hit points, then you're back to solving it another way, and the other way should be a scary, horrible, nightmarish solution. Sure, it's why the final scene in Call of Cthulhu scenario almost never is the big climactic fight against the boss monster. It's usually pouring concrete down the old well, or driving a truck full of dynamite into the mine shaft, or, right? It's, it's always a problem-solving element, because the ultimate big boss is something you can't fight. Well, I wanted to, uh, sorry, I wanted to throw this open to anybody else who has questions, but we can continue this. Oh, one of the way back, yes. I'm curious if there's an example of like an individual game mechanic that uh, is affected at evoking the, uh, the emotion of the uncanny in the room, distinct from like horror or uh, suspense, like specifically weirdness. The, the emotion of what? Yeah. The uncanny. Oh, and that is a game mechanic that evokes the uncanny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean that's 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 our that's our goal here in all of this. I mean I think I think the I think san the sanity rules do that because they communicate to the players very explicitly 
Um, by the way, if you haven't noticed by the dent of my description of all this, this is uncanny because your character sheet tells you so. Um, and so that can kind of reinforce that and catch the player's attention if your descriptions of it. Yeah. It's, it, a, it's a tool for a reminder, at least. Yeah. yeah. I, I think that the uncanny specifically is best addressed by GM techniques as opposed to mechanics. Because of, uh, the uncanny is the familiar within the unfamiliar, or vice versa. And so that is harder to do mechanically unless you are mechanically making people roll to recognize grandma, which you should not be doing. But if you say to the players, no, grandma looks great. She actually looks better than she's ever looked. She looks like she gained, I don't know, six inches of height. Then <laughs> the players are like, well, I'm happy for grandma, but that is not good news to me. So you got to remember that, like, the uncanny when you're running around in the Scottish Highlands is going to be probably evoked in a different way than if you're in a, a library somewhere. And, but like, if you're, you can you can make the uncanny appear with good things for the players. Yeah. I had a player once regrow his finger, and that was the worst thing ever. And like, all the other players are like, he's a monster, and uh, you know. Or I've, I've had players open the door to find like a solid ingot of gold there as a bribe, and they're like, who has a solid ingot of gold? I thought these were poverty cultists. What the hell? You know, and then there's that triggered the uncanny. Yeah, are there any other examples of, of mechanics that, that, uh, that do happen? I mean, uh, that's why I'm coming up dry. The way that you, you <laughs> deliver it mechanically is to have an uncertain result from something. So that you have, um, you know, maybe it's a deal where you've got a very swingy die, you roll a die 20, and on a 20, something awful happens, on a 1, something nice happens. And you get to decide when to roll it. And maybe something in the game is like tempting you to roll it or, or encouraging you to roll it or suggesting very strongly that you roll it. But I mean, the whole nature of the uncanny is that it's so bound up in personal perception yeah. that it's very, very difficult unless you are literally mechanizing their ability to, per to perceive the outside world for some reason. GURPS does that. Right. <laughs> GURPS does that. Yeah, for sure. There's GURPS, a skill for yeah. perceiving reality and it's rated 1 to 100. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, with with with, uh, with, with game systems that have very finely framed disadvantages, that's actually an excellent point. Uh, you can in, impose those those disadvantages at uh, in response to game stimuli. So if you say um, you walked into the room and now you are um, uh, uh, scared of bees, well, I wasn't scared of bees before. Well, you are now. Start rolling. Uh, <laughs> then that's uncanny because no one else is scared of bees. You didn't even see any bees. Why? Why am I scared? What is going on with the damn bees? <laughs> but bees? that's again, that's a GMing technique in service with the mechanics, as opposed to just me saying to one player, uh, "Do you hear bees?" And then the player going, "I don't know." <laughs> like good rules adjudicate and good DMs make people rely on rules to try and figure out where reality is or where like a good result is or a mixed success is or a tactical treat where they don't all die is you know like I think that's probably what you want to have rules do I don't know if you can yeah. like really mechanize yeah. something like the uncanny because that's weird other than like so yeah it's very subjective well, rules can answer questions like where is the elephant can I see this guy um, like, like I said, rules are, are a support system, so by having a sanity system, then the game master doesn't have to say, you're going insane because it's so shocking. He just like, does the player kind of handle that part of the world? Yeah, once players start rolling their own, like, yo, I think I should be checking my sanity, you know, you've been doing well. You're in the right spot. Yeah, and that's yeah. The, why that system's so good is that, like, 
the moment that players adjudicate, like, no, I think I should be checking I I my sanity now, is like, yo, that successfully put a hook in. Oh, I wasn't going to make you, but go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> well, I would never say that happen, right? But the, and then the players want to play out their insanity. I think, what do you think is going to happen? Is that even you know, hysterical? Or maybe, I think they're going to attack this, my friend with a knife, and the friend is like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah, I I now I just have this new phobia all yeah. of a sudden. So we had other questions, I'm sure, and we are. Let's see. Um, yes. Um, we talked about the mechanics as far as how they would work to create um, the atmosphere for, but I was wondering about as, as a person who runs games, is there any particular good points as far as your delivery, your narrative style that would help create that atmosphere for, as far as like, is there any like uh, strategies as far as being a narrator of the yes. public narrative? Yes, lots. Yeah. Uh, uh, yes. say we, um, what are your techniques to use as a game master to bring about the atmosphere of horror? Um, I will say, rather than try to answer it in the short time we have left, for, for me at least, they can take whatever they want, is that I actually have a YouTube channel, Sandy of Cthulhu. Recently I have two videos, one called Three Rules to Make Your Horror Game Scarier, another one is called One Rule to Make Your Horror Game Scarier, and that will give you four different rules that I use <laughs> to make your horror game scarier game <laughs> And if you want more rules than that, uh, I have written my ideas on that topic in GURPS Horror 4th Edition, which is on sale in the vendor's room right now. Uh, there you go. Bait the hook. Literally, if the players are asking good questions that make them get more involved in a question of something that is wrong or broken or is fundamentally distract, sorry, I'm trying not to use bad language and I'm very bad about that, that is in some way like really screwing with their sense of perception, then you've got everything working and then your sanity system or your panic system or whatever can fall back on it. But like the moment that you give players like enough of a detail that they want to pull the thread knowing that it's going to undo the suture is like the moment that you know that you've done everything right. Yeah, you want them, you want players to feel uh, somewhat disjointed. You, you, you want them to feel like they're, they're not seeing the whole picture, and maybe they don't want to. So, um, so, you, so it, it takes some practice to kind of uh, train yourself to uh, under-deliver. And remember, the players are your allies in this, they're your buddies, because they are playing Call of Cthulhu or whatever because they want to have a scary movie thing. They aren't in here to kill the monsters and gather the treasure and increase their level. They know, they kind of know what they're in for. And so they aren't going to fight vigorously against something awful, usually. Me mechanically, a quick and dirty rule that I, I keep in my head as I'm narrating uh, whatever is going on is uh, speed. And that's neutral, slow, and fast. Neutral is something where I'm just describing a room like this grand ballroom that we're in right now. There's large pillars and a grandiose ceiling and these beautiful chandeliers. But if I want to describe something horrific and really call the players to slow down my voice, perhaps that shadow is moving back there. That's <coughs> and that kind of draws the player's attention in. And then when the action starts to ramp up or the horror really bursts out, I can speak a lot faster and describe things in a more rapid manner and really drive up that tension for the players as they're listening to me and try to keep up as fast as they can. Okay. And that seems I have to run. I think yeah. we, are, we are over. And, um, but I want to thank you all for coming. I want to thank our panelists. And, um, This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.